In this episode of Flying Smarter, I'm going to start off by talking about what departure times and arrival times actually mean, and then tell you about North Korea's national airline. Afterwards, I'm taking a look at what you need to know about oxygen masks, life jackets, and life rafts. Welcome to episode 21 of Flying Smarter, the podcast that explores the fascinating world of air travel to help you become a smarter and savvier traveler. For those of you who are new to the podcast, my name is Andrew and I'm your host. I generally start each episode by answering one or two questions about air travel. Then, I share some sort of interesting tidbit or fun fact before going into the main segment. Now for those of you who are regular listeners, I want to take a moment to really thank you for your ongoing support of the podcast. Seeing you join me on your podcast app and on social media truly means a lot. Now, let's get started. What do departure and arrival times actually refer to? In episode 19, I talked about how airlines determine flying times and how they sometimes pad their schedules. On a related note, I now want to address what departure times and arrival times actually mean. The departure and arrival times of a flight generally refer to the times at which the plane leaves the departure gate and arrives at the arrival gate. More specifically, the departure time is generally the time when the aircraft's parking brake is released and the arrival time is when the aircraft's parking brake is set upon arrival. These times are what most airline flight schedules refer to, but there are some different definitions in different contexts. For example, under the European Union's Flight Compensation Regulations, commonly referred to as EU 261, the arrival time is considered to be the time that the aircraft door is opened. The US Bureau of Transportation Statistics uses the parking brake definition, but also notes that if the parking brake is not used, the gate departure and arrival time should be recorded as the time for the closing and opening of the passenger door. Did you know that North Korea has its own airline? Although there is very little international travel in and out of North Korea, those that can travel can fly on Air Koryo, North Korea's state-owned airline. It operates an aging fleet of Soviet and Russian passenger and cargo aircraft, but it can't really acquire new planes due to international sanctions. The airline was started in the 1950s to connect the North Korean capital of Pyongyang with Moscow. Throughout the Cold War era, the airline, which was previously branded under the Civil Aviation Administration of Korea, offered flights to destinations such as Berlin in Germany, Sofia in Bulgaria, and of course, Moscow in the Soviet Union. The airline was rebranded in the early 1990s as Air Koryo, but with the end of the Cold War, Air Koryo's international network began to shrink. Furthermore, Air Koryo was added to the list of airlines banned in the European Union in 2006. Even in the 2010s though, Air Koryo was actually operating flights to Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia and Kuwait, but these ended largely due to international sanctions. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, Air Koryo offered international flights to Beijing, Shenyang, Macau, Vladivostok, as well as a number of domestic services. The only international route that I could confirm is currently in operation is the service between Beijing and Pyongyang, but as with many things to do with North Korea, available information is fairly limited. (music) 
bringing on interesting guests and growing the podcast's audience helps me create better episodes for you, and I could really use your help. If you enjoy listening to Flying Smarter and have been able to learn a thing or two about air travel from the podcast, please help me out by leaving a 5-star review on your podcast app. Not only does it help prospective listeners hit that play button, but it also helps convince guests to come share their knowledge and insights with you. If you're listening on a platform that allows you to do so, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Good Pods, I would really appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave a positive review for the podcast. Now, let's get into the main segment. Safety is paramount in aviation, and there are a lot of things that help keep passengers safe when flying. Today, I want to talk about three safety features that you've probably heard of in a safety demonstration, but probably also haven't given much thought to beyond that. And hopefully, you haven't had to use any of these and will never have to use one of these, but there are some important and interesting things to know about them. In this segment, I want to go into detail about oxygen masks, life jackets, and life rafts, covering why they're needed, how they work, and what you need to know about them. Let's start with oxygen masks and what they're for. The amount of air pressure acting on us decreases as we get higher and higher in the sky. You might notice these changes on planes or in an elevator when you feel your ears pop. The air molecules are spread further apart, and we breathe in less oxygen. So when flying at high altitudes, aircraft are pressurized so that passengers can safely function and breathe. Once you get to around 15,000 feet, there is no longer enough oxygen in the air for a human being, and at about 18,000 feet, humans will only have about 20 to 30 minutes of useful consciousness. To deal with this, airliners have pressurization systems that basically constantly pump clean air into the cabin, and then there are outflow valves that let air out to control the pressure. The pressurization system is why you can't open a door in flight and why the air in a plane cabin actually gets changed every few minutes. Planes are generally pressurized so that the cabin has an internal pressure equivalent of about 6,000 to 8,000 feet. That means that even if you're cruising at 36,000 feet, it only feels as if you were at 8,000 feet inside the cabin, which is perfectly safe for humans. The oxygen masks are designed for a situation in which the pressurization system has failed at a high altitude. In other words, they're meant for a scenario in which there isn't enough oxygen for humans because a plane is at a high altitude and the pressurization system isn't working. Now let's move on to how oxygen masks actually work. Generally speaking, Oxygen masks will deploy automatically if an aircraft is at higher than around 12 to 14,000 feet and the cabin loses pressurization. The masks fall from a panel above your seat, and there will usually be an extra mask for an infant or someone in the aisle. For example, if you're sitting in a set of three seats, there will likely be four masks that fall. The masks typically consist of a yellow silicone cup with adjustment straps on either side. They're also fitted with a bag. I'll talk more about why the bag may not inflate in a moment. On the Boeing 787, the masks don't have a bag or the adjuster straps. What most of us know about the oxygen masks is limited to what airlines tell us in the safety demonstration. You may recall that you have to pull on the mask to start the flow of oxygen. On most aircraft, when you pull on the mask, 
what happens is that it sets off a chemical reaction in the chamber above your seat. It would be prohibitively expensive and heavy to actually carry oxygen for all passengers on board, so what the industry has come up with is a chemical reaction that generates oxygen. When you pull on your mask, it starts this reaction and creates oxygen for you to breathe. Because the chemicals create a lot of heat, it's possible that passengers will smell a burning smell. What's also important to note is that the oxygen system only provides enough oxygen for around 15 minutes. The purpose of the system isn't to supply oxygen for the rest of the flight. Rather, it's only to allow everyone to breathe until the pilots can bring the aircraft to a safer, lower altitude. In the case that there is a loss of cabin pressurization, pilots will begin a descent to an altitude where there is enough oxygen for humans. Now, Perhaps the most memorable line from the safety demonstration about these masks is that the bag may not inflate. The reason that this is the case is not because you're not getting any oxygen. The oxygen flows constantly whether you're breathing in or not. What the bag does is store the extra oxygen that flows in but that you aren't using when you're breathing out. So if you're breathing rapidly, there may not be any extra oxygen to store in the bag, and your bag therefore would not inflate. You probably know that in the safety demonstration, passengers are instructed to put their own mask on before helping others. Why is this? Well, this one is fairly simple. At a high altitude, you can lose consciousness within 30 seconds if you don't get oxygen quickly. As such, if you don't put your own mask on first before helping someone else who needs assistance, you could easily pass out before you get a chance to help them. I also want to stress the importance of making sure that you know how to use these masks. The safety features that I talk about in this segment are all very rarely used, but out of the three, oxygen masks are the most commonly one to be deployed. As uninteresting as it may be, it's always important to pay attention to the safety demonstration. For example, airlines will tell you to ensure that the mask covers your nose and mouth, but on a Southwest Airlines aircraft where the oxygen masks were deployed, images from the flight showed tons of passengers with the mask covering only their mouth. And finally, don't remove the mask until the crew instructs you to do so. Now let's move on to life jackets. There are government regulations that require aircraft to carry life jackets in certain circumstances. In Canada, for example, the Canadian aviation regulations state that life preservers are required for flights more than 50 nautical miles from shore. There are similar regulations in other parts of the world as well. Although the requirement to carry life jackets may only exist in certain circumstances, Many planes will simply carry life jackets all the time to avoid the problems of having to install and remove them as needed. As you'll likely know from safety demonstrations, airliners carry inflatable life jackets. In economy class and premium economy class seats, these are typically stored under each seat. In business class and first class seats though, they may be stored elsewhere such as beside the seat near the floor there is generally a red tab that you can pull on to access or release the life jacket. As a passenger, it's important to know where your life jacket is located so that you aren't scrambling to find it in the case of an emergency. These inflatable life jackets have cartridges of carbon dioxide in them. When the tag is pulled to inflate the vest, the gas gets released 
and that rapidly inflates the vest. Typically, there is also a backup inflation tube that passengers can blow into if needed as well. They'll also usually have some sort of battery-powered light and possibly a whistle as well. You might recall from the safety demonstration that passengers are instructed not to inflate the life jacket until they are about to leave the plane. There are a few reasons for this. People wearing inflated life jackets take up more space, which can slow down an evacuation process. Picture how cramped it can get when deplaning in normal circumstances, and then imagine if everyone had an inflated life jacket on. Additionally, a life jacket that is inflated in the cabin is more likely to get damaged or torn. Now, there hasn't actually been a modern-day example where life jackets saved lives in commercial aviation, so there is some question on the effectiveness and usefulness of carrying them. That being said, the number of incidents where planes end up in water is also pretty low. If you do end up having to evacuate a plane when it is in the water, though, I would imagine that you would rather have a life jacket than not. Like many things in aviation safety, being aware of where they are and how to use them is important because in the event of an emergency, time is of the essence, and passengers will likely be stressed and panicked. In January 2009, US Airways 1549 famously landed in the Hudson River. Of the 150 passengers on board, only 33 of them put on a life jacket, and only 4 managed to don it properly with the waist strap. Now, the plane ended up in a location where passengers could be rescued quite easily and nobody ended up actually needing their life jacket. However, in a situation where passengers would actually need their life jackets, those numbers are alarming and highlight the importance of understanding the safety features of an aircraft. I now want to talk briefly about the use of seat cushions as flotation devices. You may have seen that sometimes there are no life jackets and passengers are told that they can use their seat cushions as flotation devices. This is pretty typical on smaller regional airliners, for example. I'll use the regulations in the United States to show why this might be the case. The US Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA, requires any airplane flying more than 30 minutes over water or 100 nautical miles from the nearest shore to carry a life jacket for each occupant. However, flights that go between 50 and 100 nautical miles from the nearest shore can also have a quote-unquote approved flotation means instead of a life jacket. The floating seat cushions would fall under this provision. While flights that only fly over land technically aren't required to carry either a life jacket or another approved flotation means, they're still typically equipped with life jackets and or floating seat cushions, either so that the airline can use the plane on overwater flights as well, or so that they're available in case the plane ends up in something like a river or a lake. As is the case with life jackets, government regulators around the world have requirements on when planes need to carry life rafts. In the United States, for example, the FAA requires any airplane flying more than 30 minutes over water or 100 nautical miles from the nearest shore to carry enough life jackets to accommodate all the occupants of the airplane. Similar regulations exist in other parts of the world as well. This means that many aircraft that only operate flights over land won't actually carry life rafts. 
Smaller regional jets in the United States, for example, generally don't carry life rafts. There are two broad types of life rafts that you'll see. The first are what you might imagine when you think of a life raft, an inflatable raft that's usually round or somewhat round that goes into the water. These are stored in the cabin. The second type are evacuation slides that also double as life rafts. Long-haul widebody aircraft, such as the Boeing 777 and the Airbus A330, have life raft evacuation slides. Things are more varied on narrow-body planes, though. On the Airbus A320 family, for example, all aircraft have evacuation slides, but airlines can choose whether they want to have slides that function as evacuation slides only, or ones that also work as life rafts. On top of that, airlines can also have inflatable life rafts stored in the aircraft. To look at another example, Southwest Airlines operates Boeing 737 aircraft throughout the United States, Central America, and the Caribbean. Some of their aircraft have life rafts, and some of them don't, depending on whether or not they are certified and used for overwater flights. The cabin-stored life rafts are most commonly found on narrow-body aircraft like the Boeing 737 and the Airbus A320 family. They are typically stored in ceiling storage compartments along the aisle, in a galley, or in an overhead bin. Airline safety videos will usually tell you the location of these life rafts, but they don't really go into how they are used, presumably because there's a good chance that it will be a crew member who is deploying them. Essentially how it works though, is that the life raft comes as a packaged rectangular bundle with a long painter line, which is essentially a rope or a cord. You hold onto the rope and throw the life raft out into the water. Then, you start pulling on the line, and when you hit the end, a sharp tug will begin the inflation process. The tug will release compressed gas while aspirators also pull in ambient air. This process will inflate the raft within a few seconds. Now let's talk about the evacuation slides that also double as life rafts. I'll start out by pointing out a caveat with the title of this episode, which is that the evacuation slides tend to be a grey colour, even if airline safety demonstration videos and safety cards sometimes show them as yellow. Evacuation slides are stored inside the door or below it. The inflation process works similarly to that of the cabin-stored life rafts, with compressed gas releasing from a canister and ambient air being sucked in as well. These slides also inflate within seconds. Both types of life rafts aren't simply large inflatables, but instead also come with various pieces of safety equipment such as survival gear. The Boeing 787 slide rafts, for example, have battery-powered LED lights to illuminate the edges of the slide, bright locator lights, a floating hook knife to disconnect the slide from the aircraft, a canopy for the raft, and a survival kit with items such as a first aid kit, bailing bucket, and a whistle. Incidents where airliners end up in the water are rare, but there are modern-day examples of both types of life rafts being used. In May 2009, a Miami Air International charter flight overran the runway at Naval Air Station Jacksonville in Florida and ended up in a river. Rafts that were stored inside the cabin were deployed to help evacuate passengers. Earlier that year, US Airways Flight 1549 famously landed in the Hudson River like I mentioned earlier. 
As you likely know from the iconic photos from that day, the inflatable evacuation slides were used by passengers as floating platforms when they evacuated the aircraft. I should note that the information here is not a substitute for information provided by the airline and that anything the airline tells you during a safety demonstration should definitely supersede what I've told you today. That being said, I hope that this segment has given you a good understanding of how these safety features work. With these yellow colored things, as is the case with all safety features, knowing how to use them before you need to do so is important and could be life-saving. That brings us to the end of this episode of Flying Smarter. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would be great if you could take a minute to leave a 5-star review for the show if you're listening on a platform that allows you to do so, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Good Pods. It helps convince prospective listeners and guests, and I would really appreciate your help. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.